Today we're in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, and in your Bibles down by your feet, it's on page, nine, page 960. First John chapter 3, 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name's Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Free City. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, you literally have hopped in in the middle of uh, a series that we're walking through uh, the letter, John's letter, uh, to a church that was really, really hurting uh, in 1 John. And so we've, we've called the series 1 John uh, for obvious reasons, because we're really, really creative. Um, but we're walking through and trying to see what, what all does John have to say, the apostle of love, the apostle who's once called the sons of thunder, he and his brother, which you don't get a nickname like that by being a real mild and meek guy, um, who now we see this theme. Where, I mean, if we were just going to break it down, he says, don't be like the world and hate and murder. So you'd write that down. Don't murder. Good. Okay. And they say, and, and be generous and, and love. And so you could write that and we could just, we could just go home. But this actually, I think it has a lot more to say for us. I think it actually has a lot for us to turn over in, in our hearts. When we, when we look at this, we actually, if you've been with us the whole time, um, you are now stepping into a new overarching theme of First John, which is God is love. You just left one, which was God is light. And I don't, you may not have noticed that, but we've been in this like little wheel where the main theme has been God is light. There is darkness, but the light has penetrated it. It is now here and it is pushing back the darkness. And then what John has done is he has talked about all these different attributes about the light of God. That's now in this dark world and now in you. And now he's going to switch to this other theme of God is love. And he's going to talk about a lot of the same kind of attributes that work around this second main point that, that God is love. And like, you probably didn't notice that. Um, I mean, you may have, you may be a better reader than me. I, I went to public school. So, I mean, I don't know. 
But because First John, John is not linear. Like a lot of the other epistles, that mean letters, uh, mostly Paul's, are very linear in say, like Galatians, Ephesians, Romans. They're very, very linear, meaning they say something like this. Hey, this is true, and this is true. So if one and two are true, then three or four are true, but never five. Always avoid five. You know, I mean, very, very linear. John doesn't work that way. Now, if you think about Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, uh, what's happening, this is really all Paul's letters. He's unpacking the gospel. This is what you have because of what Jesus did. This is all that's available to you. You didn't earn it. It was given to you because God from forever past chose to create you and bestow his love upon you. And his love will change you. And so it starts in, in Ephesians, the first half, one, two, and three, is all about this life-changing love of God that we call the gospel, that Jesus came and died in your place to make you so you can now stand before God in his righteousness. He took your sin and gives you his righteousness. And then he's like, okay, this is true, chapters one, two, and three. Then we get to chapters 4, 5, and 6, and we hit themes like this. If that is true, then this tells us how to do church. We should be unified. If that is true, then this tells us how people change. Change doesn't always happen real linearly or easily. He goes on, he says, if that is true, then this is how we should do marriage, parenting. This is how we should do work. And if that is true, this is how we engage in spiritual battle really linear. And so, I mean, if you are kind of a type A person, you know, type A person, Enneagram 5, if you are that person, you love Paul's letters. Like you can just kind of dig in deep on them. But if you are not that kind of person, if you're more artsy or fun, you just want to give him a wedgie, you know? And so you should love First John. He is like the haiku apostle. I mean, he is like you know, seven, five, seven. No, wait, five, seven, whatever. I, I'm not the haiku guy. And so, I mean, you should love him. He is all over the place and he is repetitive. And he wants us to take these images that he gives us. Like God is light. And he wants us to wrestle with those things. He wants us to ask questions like, what if I let the light of God into this relationship? He wants us to wrestle with, what if I carry the light of the gospel into my work or into my classroom? What if I let it lead me in my family relationships? Might they be different? He wants us to dream and wrestle with these things. And now he brings this next theme, God is love. And so we've actually heard some of this language before. And so look, look at verse 11. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Like we've heard this love and hate relationship back in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, but that was around a different theme. And now he's going to apply the same kind of language, the same kind of argument, the same message to show how the love of God doesn't just light up a room, it changes a heart and makes a heart that reciprocates love at best to a heart that reflects an otherworldly love. He's going to step in. And he's going to return to this idea. And you might, like, I mean, sometimes you think, oh, I've heard it, you know, I don't need to hear it again. Um, and you might ask the question, hey, why is John talking about this again? And the answer is because you still stink at it. 
He could talk about the quality of your love a thousand times, and we still stink about it. It's like when you do the, like the sermon series on how to have good friendships. And you know, some people do that every year, like, man, your friendships stink. How do we do good friendships? And you get motivated, you're like, man, I should do that, that. And then next year you do it again, and you're like, man, my friendships still stink. Because you haven't invited the light or the love of God into them. That's not really a how-do It's more of a changing nature in you. And so right here, it's not wasted breath for him to come back and say it again. And if you're like me, Casey, you're repetitive. I'm not repetitive. The Bible's repetitive. But here we go. Actually, so Anna, our youngest, uh, she's cute. That's her spiritual gift. She, um, uh, when I, I, I love it, I'll tell Anna, I love you. And she'll go, I know, Dad. And I'll be like, how do you know? She's like, you tell me all the time. And I'm like, I just wanted you to know I love you. And so we do that discourse all the time. And so there's, there's an element. I know she knows, but I want that knowledge to be deep. Because one day a boy is going to say, Anna, I love you. And I want it to be deep so she knows that I will kill him. <laughs> and so it's not that, it's not that you know. You need to know. And so he comes back around, and we're going to talk about this love versus hate theme again. You see, here he's going to unpack the nature, and this time he really unpacks it. Like, just look down at the text. In both of the texts, when he talks about hate first, we have a live example. We have a motivated feeling, and we have a death. I mean, I mean, look at it. I mean, here, Cain hated and murdered his brother Abel. Live example, person Cain, the nature in his heart, how his heart was bit, hatred, the action, death of his brother. He unpacks it. He says, think about the first family. Think about one generation away from the fall, how it messed that family up. Think about how worldly love, reciprocating love, turns to hate and how we need an unworldly love. So then he gives us another example. Jump down to the end. What we see is why Jesus loved and laid down his life for us. The person, Jesus, the nature of his heart, love, giving love. The death laying down all that he had that we, his brothers now, joint heirs of the kingdom of God. Everything that was all his, he tore up upon the cross and he's dispersed it out. That we could be adopted into the family of God and call upon the Father, Father. Live examples. The motivation in the heart. And a death. You know, when we actually, if you just look at this, like step even back a little bit further at this text, in verse 11 and 12, we see murder. In verses 13 through 15, we see hatred. In, in, in verses 16 and 17, we see the danger of indifference, which sometimes doesn't sound indifferent. It just sounds like a lot of care for all that's out there, but it but ignoring of what's right in front of me in the singular. And then in verse 18, we see Paul, I mean, not Paul, John just say, put this love into action. Like, this is pretty sweeping. 
Like this almost, this gives you a little like whiplash. On one side, we have murderous hate. And the other side, we have sacrificing love. And like, that's like a lot to take in. That means there's a lot in between here. But that continuum was actually offered to me this week. So my father-in-law um, sent with his wife, my mother-in-law, a pet snake, a, a gardener snake that he caught um, which is now in my house. And so just as a snake entered the garden and to destroy all shalom, my father-in-law sent aloe, his name is now aloe, into my house. So aloe is a cute little green snake. I mean, we looked it up. I mean, he's probably a um, rough green snake. But in my heart of hearts, I think he's a copperhead, you know? And so, you know, it, it's tentative. Like, now it got cold, and I'm like, do we just send it out to die? And, um, I mean, I'm okay with that, but we haven't. And I actually, so we, 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 we text one of our friends, because they have a lot of critters, and we're like, hey, do you have a little critter cage? And she bought us a new one. And so I feel obligated to hang on to aloe for a little while. And so we're researching how to take care of aloe. My daughter, Liv, we are driving, and she goes... Hey, Kay, or dad. Um, sometimes she does call me Casey. Um, but she goes, hey, dad, on a scale of one to 10, how much do you love aloe? Well, we, we do a lot of scales of one to 10. I was like, I don't know what's one, what's 10. And she said, one, you want to kill him, which is like, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> 10, you'll die for him. <laughs> Same continuum this week. Murderous hate life-giving, sacrificial love. Are you a one or a 10? Before I could say anything, Cruz in the back of the car goes, I'm an 11. And I was like, I'm a little less than 11. Um, but what, this is what, this is the continuum that's in front of you. Murderous hate that causes the death of a brother driven by envy and self-exposure. an otherworldly, sacrificial, life-giving love. This is what's in front of us. And really, uh, this is how we're going to phrase it. And so if you're taking notes, we have, we have two points, two main points. And we're going to talk about uh, this, loving like the world. What does it look like to love like the world? And like for some, that could be really insulting, but I think I'm going to try to unpack it in not an insulting way, but what we actually see. And then the back half of it, loving like Jesus. Because those are the examples, loving like the world, loving like Jesus. And so first, in verses 11 through 15, we are warned about loving in a worldly way. And this is just the normal way that we naturally love others, that just naturally comes out, that naturally kind of puts us on a downward spiral. And so even though verse 11, it commands us to, to love one another, it jumps really fast into this idea of hate. It says, you should love one another and don't be like Cain who hated and murdered. Like, it jumps pretty fast. And so I just want to make this case that there is a natural way because of the fallenness of us that we fight against all the time. And some of us do a great job of fighting against it. But we fight against it all the time. There is a natural pattern of love that is reciprocal in nature in this world. And so, like, let me just, let's just do this. So verse 11. And for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Now, 
this is, uh, you know, when John is writing this, what happened is a bunch of leaders of the faith have left the church. They've embraced a different kind of set of salvation, the way it works. They're saying, we don't really need Jesus. It doesn't really matter how we live because we have this, like, you know, intrinsic knowledge now that we're above that. And so that's why he's saying, no, no, if you're in the light or if you're in the love of God, it's going to affect the way you live. It's going to affect the way you treat others. And he says, this is the message from the beginning. It hasn't changed. We're not stepping into like a new continuum of information. It hasn't changed. And so he reminds him, if you remember the first part, he's like, hey, man, I saw Jesus. I walked with Jesus. I heard what he taught. I'm still alive. This is not far from us. A historical Jesus that lived and died that is written about more than anyone else that is firmly established that he died upon a cross and then his followers said, man, he lived again. And we have to wrestle with that. The message hasn't changed. But just for us, and this is all times, all people, you should be leery when someone who's still looking at the scriptures comes up with some radically new insight that undoes the way people have understood the scriptures for thousands of years. You should just apply some skepticism. The language in which it was written has been dead for about a thousand years. You should be, you should be leery, especially when it just happens to go with what we, our culture wants to hear. Just be leery of that. Like, that's kind of crazy. That's like when you go to break up with someone and they don't accept it. I don't want to hear that. We're still together. No, it doesn't work that way. I'm breaking up with you. I mean, let's just let's, let's talk about some breakup rules real fast. This is this is timely. Um, isn't no? Um, don't blame God. All right. This this has nothing to do with First John. You can't be like, well, God wants us to be broken up. If God wants you to be broken up, it's because there's something wrong in the relationship. That's probably your fault. All right, you can't blame God, like, I really want to be with you, but he says no, so, you know. You can't blame him. Own it. But you got to be really clear. You know, if you, if you, when you're breaking up, you're like, you know, I mean, it's just not right now, but, I mean, who knows, maybe later. That's all they hear. Who knows, maybe later. You're not really going to be friends. I mean, you'll be friendly. You should be friendly. And right now, so I'm like, that's not true. No, it is true. You might, you, one day you might get engaged, and then you might get married. You're not just going to hang out with your ex. Your ex will become what's her face or what's his face. I mean, just, you, you need it. You can't, like, listen, if you say, hey, I just really want to be friends. You should be friendly. Like, I'm going to see you. We're going to hang out. I mean, but friendly. But if you say, I just really want to be friends, all they hear is Michael Bolton. How can we be lovers and we can't be friends? And they're like, oh, okay, it's going to work. Okay. I mean, Michael Bolton, he sold a lot of records, you know I mean? And so the danger is, and the reason why he says this is the message from the beginning, we are so prone to hear what we want to hear. And if the word of God doesn't offend you, like it's going to offend you. We're going to go beatitudes in a minute on you. It's going to offend you. It's going to challenge you. If it doesn't offend you, you're not reading it right. And so he says, this is the message that we've heard from the beginning. It hasn't changed. And then he says, verse 11, stay with it. It says that we should love one another. Like one way to think about this is what the gospel does inside of us. It corrects our loves. 
Like we think about the, the message of the gospel coming to like to fix what we do, like stop being that and watching that or doing that. It, but John says, no, listen, what the seed of the gospel, the seed of God inside of you, what it's going to do is it's going to reorientate your soul, reorder your loves, put them in the right dimensions. It is here to correct you on the inside, and that will come out. And the litmus test of all of this stuff, he's like, hey, if you see something else coming out, maybe the seed of God isn't in you. But I also want, this came up in our city group. Man, I, my city group, we should talk about the, the, the passage I'm about to preach, because they always give insight, and I'm like, dang, I wish I would have known that before, you know I mean? They always give this insight. But like one of the insights was, Hey, sometimes killing sin is like beheading it. It just dies. Sometimes it's like slowly poisoning it. It just gets weaker over time. Sometimes the work of God on the inside of your soul is strengthening a love that is atrophy, that takes time to get strong, while it kind of smothers another love that needs to be weaker. And so it's here to reorient. And this is, this is the part where I'm about to go be attitudes on you. And so like sometimes like when we preach, like you're like, oh man, I feel guilty. And sometimes like something's said, and I know because this happens to me, uh, like someone's preaching, they say something like, oh dude, that's me. And you're like, don't move. I mean, it's like you're standing in front of a T-Rex. If I move, everyone's going to know that is me, um, which I don't know how we know T-Rexes actually see only movement. I don't know how we, I mean, that was Jurassic Park. I don't know if that's true, but you're like, don't move. Like how much worse would it be when Jesus preaches because he sees your soul? Like the, the phrase that you see over and over, knowing their thoughts, that is rough Sunday. Knowing their thoughts. Well, hey, Casey, let me talk to you about your stuff. I mean, knowing their thoughts. Matthew 5, same theme. You have heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That, that's the reciprocating love that all our loves in the world eventually get to. The reciprocating love that all our loves eventually get to. You know what it looks like? It, it looks like this. It, it looks like, hey, that person snubbed me, so I'm going to snub them. They told some stories about me, so I'm going to tell some stories about them. They love and accept me, so I want to love and accept them. They were rude to me, so I'm going to be rude to them. They hate me, I hate them. Reciprocating. I think I said that right. Reciprocating. And we, we fight that and we do better, but it's where it's all going. I mean, have you, not, have you never been guilty of that? You know, my, my little cruises soccer team that I coach, um, it's not just like on action. Sometimes it's on spit. They started spitting on each other. And uh, I mean, literally, like, it was like a minute. I mean, I, I look away from them for a minute and I look back and like there's spit all over everybody. I'm like, and so I had to put my dad's pad. Like, what the heck is going on around here? You know? And I'm like, what happened? No, no. And uh, what happened was one kid spit and it landed on another kid's shoe. And so he's like, well, you're going to spit on my shoe. I'm going to spit on your shoe. And so then he spat on his shoe. But it was different. I accidentally spit on your shoe. You meant to spit on my shoe. So I have to spit up. And then spit just kind of worked its way up. Reciprocating love of the world. <laughs> spit on your enemies, I'll spit on you. That's what this is talking about. I'll love the people who love me, but the people who don't love me, I'm not going to love them. They've got it coming. 
So it goes on, verse 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, because we are enemies of God and he loves us. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This means that Jesus is being kind to everyone, whether they ever love him or not. I know we get caught up on why do bad things happen have you ever just asked ask the question, why, why do good things ever happen? Why, why does anyone ever experience like any joy or happiness? And it's because Jesus makes the sun rise on evil and good. Verse 46, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do this? He says, everyone does that. They love the people who love them, and the people who hate them, they hate them. He says, that's so worldly. It's so normal. And then verse 47, he says, For if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The subject was loving people who don't love you. It's not reciprocal. It goes beyond that. And so he's warning us. And he does this so many times. He calls this like the, the turn the other cheek kind of love, Matthew five thirty nine. The forgive 70 times 7 kind of love, Matthew 8, 22. The walk the extra mile kind of love, Matthew 5, 41. The I'll give you my tunic also kind of love, Matthew 5, 40. It's the kind of love that Jesus said upon the cross while he was being killed. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like he's saying, our loves are in danger of only reciprocating what is given to us. And Jesus has come to resurrect an unworldly love among us that is actually the humanity that you want, the humanity that you strive for, the humanity that you dream, the hole in your heart that you want to exist among your friends and family and peers where people see you, accept you, and love you, and you see them, accept them, and love them, but refuse to let them destroy themselves. Unworldly love. Peter, he talks about like this in 1 Peter 5, 4. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You see, that's the kind of love. You hurt me. If I have this other love, I, I, I let love cover it and I don't repay you for that hurt. I might confront you for it, but I don't just hurt you back. It's a forgiving love. And then it goes on. He says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Like he just talked to all our city group leaders. I mean, he just went there where he's like, like he just addressed us. I love throwing my city group under the bus. You know, sometimes we'll find a mess and he's like, what kind of person would do this? I'll be like, these animals, you know, I mean, I throw them under the bus right away. It's only funny if you're a city group leader. Okay. (laughs) The love that Jesus showed the love that John is telling us to display is not a common reciprocating love that only loves those who love them and is willing to hate those who hate them. 
It's a reflective love that is showing an unworldliness that has been implanted in you because Jesus has entered as the light of God. It is a rescinding kind of love because Jesus has entered as the love of God. He says it's altogether different. But then we get into our case study. And he says, the danger is reciprocating love can turn to hate because of envy. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And so what he's describing is like envying someone and being like, man, why are they accepted and I'm not? Why did they win and I didn't? Why did they start and I didn't? Why do people love him and not me? Why did they become blah, 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 whatever you want to put there and not me? That envying love is a quick trajectory to murder. Like if we look at Genesis 4 where this story comes from, I mean, it tells us, I mean, so both Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve, I mean, so they're like one generation away from, you know, the, the garden. I mean, they're hearing about God in a very silly way. Like we used to walk with him and we really blew it. I mean, they're hearing about it in a really incredible way, you know. And so all of a sudden they bring offerings to God and Cain's is rejected and Abel's is accepted. And, and it tells us why. It says Cain brought his offering. It was an offering. In verse 3, Genesis 4, 3, an offering. And then it says, Abel, it describes his offering as saying, the firstborn of his flock, the very first. And so, I mean, how, how do you feel? If you have younger siblings, how do you feel when they succeed and you don't? You want to kill them, right? I mean, you don't be like, oh, man, way to go, little brother. I was little brother, and so I don't really know what that feels like. But you don't do that. You want to kill them. And so he started like, man. Hate it when my younger brother outperforms me. And what does God do? God comes to warn him. Look at this. Look at Genesis 4, 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? That's describing anger and depression, which most of us don't associate our depression tendencies to low-grade anger that is envious, but you should. And so it describes like this low-grade, why are you angry? Your brother didn't do anything to you. And then it goes on. It says, if you do well, verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin, listen to this, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Do you see the warning? That hate that you're nurturing, you think you've got it under control, but it's crouching. It looks smaller than what it is. And it is a predator trying to conquer you. And you think you have a handle on it because it looks little. But when it steps out from what it's hiding behind all your excuses for why your brother did what he did and his motivations that may or may not be true and all the rhetoric that you have in your head that is nursing this grudge and this depression and this anger, when it steps out from behind its little smoke screen, 
It is far more than you can handle, and it consumes. That's the warning. And then the next verse, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. That's the case study. I know right now you're thinking, whoa, kind of dramatic. Um, But that's the warning. God says, watch out. God came to Cain and said, watch out, Cain. John is coming to Christians and says, watch out. Your reciprocating competitive love will turn murderously if you don't confront it. You think I'm being dramatic? I think Cain probably said the same thing. And so we're warned about there's this pattern of worldly love. We're warned that that worldly love can turn to hate because of envy and certainly many other things. But it talks about envy here. And then it tells us this. In verse 13 and 14, we're going to just say this really, really fast. It says that actually it uses that relationship to describe how the world is going to view Christians. It says, like, we should expect the world to hate us. Like, it says in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So we know because we actually will, will forgive our brothers and sisters. We'll actually forgive people who hurt us. And so it goes on, whoever does not love abides in death. Like I want us to be careful. I want you to hear this, but I want you to be careful. Because sometimes this truth can kind of get construed to let you be a jerk and the world hate you. Like the message of the gospel is offensive. God is claiming ownership and right to name everything in your life, and he's not afraid to name things wrong. Sometimes we add offense. I don't know why. We just, it's fine, maybe. I don't know. And then when, when, when that, that gets pushed against us, and we're like, oh, see, I'm being persecuted because I'm right. You know, a lot of people did hate Jesus. They killed him. A lot of lost people really loved Jesus. They, they couldn't understand why is he so kind to me. That dichotomy should exist in your life. If it's, if it's all one or the other, something's wrong. And it's probably you. I mean, I, I, that happens to me. Like when I say you, it's like up here you. Okay, me too. Um, but like, I, I want you to hear this and know that's a reality. I don't want it to become a license. And so we're, we're warned about that. I mean, sometimes I get so irritated that my kids are kids. I'll say stupid stuff like, why are you acting like children? Because they're children. Like when we're like, why, when we're like the world, why is the world acting like the world? I mean, that's a little crazy. It says more about you than it does about them. When I do that, it says more about my maturity than it does about my kids' maturity. I should expect my kids to mess up. That's why I'm here, to instruct. And so, like, it does say that there's going to be this dichotomy. The world's not going to get it, and there's going to be an opposition. And sometimes we're going to be wrongfully accused, and sometimes we're going to be thrown under the bus. And if we are giving, we're going to be taken advantage of. But sometimes we take that and we add in license form, and we add insult with it. Verse 15. 
just the final warning that worldly reciprocating love turning into envious hate is evidence that you may not know Jesus. Everyone, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is um, the way we want to, the way this is supposed to understand is the form of a seed. If you remember that language in 1 John 3, 9 and 10, it says, God's seed lives in you. And see, a seed can only grow what is inside of the seed. And so you could ask this question. You could look at an acorn tree and you could say, how many acorns are in that tree? And you could count them. I mean, if you don't have a job and you need something to do, you could count all of the acorns. But if you picked up an acorn and you said, how many trees are in this acorn? You can never count the vast number of trees possessing in that one acorn. And that's what it's saying about hate. A reciprocating love that just grows in what's given to you and grows. It contains, I mean, ultimately hating someone is saying, I don't want you here. I want you gone. And the message of that seed can grow murderously faster than you ever want to know. And so that's the warning. And so the first thing is he holds up a pattern and he says, hey, there's, there's a way that the world's love just reciprocates and reciprocates. And eventually we, we're sinners, so we all, we all step on each other's toes. We hurt one another. We fail each other. And so eventually if we just let it reciprocate and reciprocate, eventually we're all, we just hate. But then he says, but there's something different. He says there's something different. Start in verse 16, and we don't have a lot of verses. We're going to kind of bounce this pretty, pretty fast. He says there's something different. He says we're commanded to love like Jesus, a love that can only do what we've received, what we know, what we've experienced. And there's ways that we can work with that to grow it in us. And so verse 16, it says, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, Lay down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Like you see the pattern? Jesus loved, died for us, gave his life for us. Cain hated, took someone else's life. He's talking about not a taking kind of love, but a giving kind of love. And so, like, receiving this seed, this kind of love, it will start to come out. It will start to come out in a narrative like this when someone offends you or hurts you, when you say, man, what would it look like if I gave them the benefit of the doubt? What would it look like if I didn't believe, man, they woke up three days ago and said, man, how could I really ruin his life? What if I thought, maybe it's just a mess up. Maybe there was good intention. What if I assumed the best? That's one way we start to work with the inner change in our lives. It's one way that we start to look like, how can I stand? What if I said this? Man, they, uh, they didn't come through. What if I just stopped and said, Man, how many times have I let someone down? There's a lot of people that probably say the same thing to me. What do I need from them? I need another chance. I need forgiveness. I might need confrontation. What if I said this? How many times has God said that about me? Wow, you kind of underperformed today. I mean, what if I change the positions? That is you participating 
with a seed of God that is growing inside of you. And by participating with it, it increases the growth. And so he's saying if you've received this kind of love, you can now start to participate. And just like he laid down his life, you can start laying down your life. And it may not start with you actually having to die for someone. It might actually start with you just forgiving someone and not reminding them all the time, oh, yeah, that's what you do because you always do that. Like, I mean, you're like lying in the wake, waiting for a moment to say, see, it's who you are. He says, this can change everything. Look at verse 17. This this verse has a lot I want to unpack. It says, but if anyone has the world's goods, and so he's talking about a giving kind of love. If anyone has the world's goods, literally it just means Uh, cosmos bios, the world's things that bring life. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Like those four words I want to unpack. First, world's goods. It it literally, I, I already told you, it just cosmos bios, bios, where we get biology, the things that you need to sustain life. It's saying, Christians, if you possess some of the things in the world that sustain life, you are eligible. And so it's talking about like things that sustain life. And so like right there, like it's, it's putting all of us in a position. We all possess things that sustain life from this world. And I I actually think we can take it a little bit further. Like this is pressing just a little bit, but this is why we fight sin. Like we fight sin because my sin is not a personal matter. It's a corporate matter. My sin, just like the crouching little tiger of hate that was about to devour Cain, it will not stop with me. It will devour my family. I I need you to fight sin for me. You need to fight sin for the person next to you who's freezing because this room is really, really cold. If you don't know them, you can still snuggle with them. I mean, it's weird, but you can. You need to fight sin. You have the possession of the light of Jesus and the love of Jesus in your heart. And so this, right when it just says lives, like it's talking about earthly possessions that supply life, but I want to take it just a step further. We're, we're a community. We need one another. We need to share the life-giving truths that we have with one another. We need to help one another. And so the first thing, it says, if you have things that produce life, this is, I'm talking to you. Then look at verse 17. It goes on, you see the word seize? Like that word, like it's saying this, are you close enough to see? It's not talking about a casual walk-by look where you just kind of see, oh, they've got need. It's talking about, do you perceive? Are you close enough, someone, to perceive what the real problem is? Because sometimes just helping the presenting problem is actually killing them. And so it's saying, Christian family... If you have anything that produces life and you are close enough to people to see what is the real problem, like you have to get close enough. And then notice this. We go, we've been saying brothers, 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 and you can always add in sisters, include you guys too. Brothers and sisters, you, okay. And all of a sudden, look at what it says in verse 17. 
If anyone has worldly goods and sees his brother, it goes singular. And so it's warning us of something. You see, sometimes when we talk about the problems out there, the problems of humanity, the problems of the church, it actually gives us license to do nothing when we have a problem right here. You see, talk about helping everyone, but I have someone right here that I need to help. I look over them because I'm like, oh man, we got all these problems. What about the brother or sister right in front of you? What are their needs? Are you close enough to them to understand the problem to help? And so, I mean, it gets real specific. C.S. Lewis in his um, fictitious screw tape letters, which it's, I wish someone would update it. The language is kind of hard to read, but I mean, I love it. I think it really helps understand how Satan works against your flesh to keep you away from being what God wants you to be as a representative in this world. And there's a part where um, you got Uncle, Uncle Screwtape, and he's helping his nephew, his kind of neophyte demon, his name's Wormwood, and he's helping him with his patient, who's a guy who became a Christian. And he's like, don't worry, we can still kind of really screw him up. And then he says this about this idea of the problems of vastness and the problem right in front of him. He says this, do what you will. There is going to be some benevolence, loving generosity and kindness. There's going to be some benevolence as well as some malice, selfish hatred in your patient soul. You have both. If God has awakened you, you have some benevolence that needs to grow. You still have some malice, selfish selfish hatred in you. It goes on and says, The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbor whom he meets every day. And to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumferences to people he does not know. The great thing to do is to have a really detailed list of all the ways that guy has screwed me up. Have wronged me a detailed list. And then to have a general idea of how I can be loving to all these people out there. He said the malice less becomes wholly real and the benevolence largely imaginary. John is warning us of the same thing. He changes it. says, who is in front of you right now that you can help give life to? Let's look there. And then the last thing, it says this, a shut heart. A shut heart. It says, yet closes like the word there means like slammed shut yet closes his heart against him like this is talking about it's a question do you have compassion for them or have you shut down that part of your faith see shutting down that part of your faith it usually sounds like this like man i mean you reap what you sow i mean that's what's going to happen if you're like that you know, when it talks about, when it says the heart in, in Greek, in this culture, when they talk about the heart, they meant like their, their bowels, like everything about them. And it makes sense. Like when you feel really guilty about something, your stomach hurts, right? Or, or when you're really nervous, like your heart flutters. And so they're saying all of this is affected by my emotions. Like, I mean, when you're really, really, like when you feel bad about something, like, man, it affects everything. Like, I mean, your stomach kind of hurts. You might get diarrhea. I mean, maybe I've heard from other people. I mean, so, I mean, it affects everything. 
And he's saying this, they regard, like they regarded the heart as a seat of emotions and decision making. And he's saying, listen, when you're close enough to someone and you see the need, not someone's someone, and you see the need and you just shut that part off, I'm not going to be affected by what you need. It's saying that's a reflection of what is inside of you. It might be a reflection of how you think God loves you. And if you think God loves you based on your performance, the gospel in you is either misinformed or you don't know what the gospel is. And so then he ends. Little children. This is Grandpa John. Probably 80, 85. The last living apostle who walked with Jesus, son of thunder, becoming the apostle of love. This is probably after his imprisonment on the island, Patmos, coming back to the church. It's all kind of wrecked because they're hurt. They're hurt. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Those four things where we just kind of unpack the, the world good, things that give life, sees close enough to understand. Brother, something right in front of you, not just out there, not in the plural, in the singular. And then shutting your heart. Like, I want to walk through those in reverse. If right now, like there's something in your soul that is like relating to that, whether it's encouragement or conviction. Like I'm asking you, don't close your heart to this. Have the courage just to ask why. Have the courage to pray, God, if you're trying to like have me extend compassion to someone to forgive them or to ask for forgiveness because I don't want a reciprocating love back. Like, Have the courage to sit with it. If you don't even know what you believe about Jesus yet, have the courage to ask the question, who was Jesus? A lot of people seem to still be talking about him. Who, who was he? Like, I know the Romans, like they crucified thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of people. Can you name one other person they crucified? Why do we know his name? Don't close your heart. Second, which is actually three, if this is resonating with your heart, don't be general, be specific. Why? Who do I need to extend love to? Who do I need to forgive? What part of me needs to be, like, do I need to confess and bring the light of Jesus or the love of Jesus into? If this is resonating with you, know this. Jesus sees you not in the way that's a passing by glance where he might have an idea of your problems, in a way like the incarnational way that he entered humanity so he would have a very firm grasp, a deep understanding of what the problem actually is. He entered in. He understands more than you'll ever know. And last, he told us the solution. In 1 John 3, 23, we'll get there soon. He told us what to do. Remember, like this was saying, hey, don't just do it in words, do it in deeds. He told us what to do. Focus on like, look at the outward love. How is that growing? But then he says this, I love it. And this is his commandment. 
In verse 23, we'll get there soon. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he commanded us. If right now there's a huge fear, I don't know if I measure up or if I'm good enough for God, this is what you do. You believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. What he did is enough. And if you start to doubt that, look at it again. And when you doubt it, look at it again. And when you doubt it, look at it again. And when you really, really doubt, you just look at the hands of Jesus. What did he bring? The scars on Jesus' hands, do they not merit? Do they not merit giving him the benefit of the doubt? See, one reminder that we do every week, and I think it's the best part of the week, is we come forward to communion. If you're a Christian, we invite you to come forward. It's a tangible way that we remember how we are made right before God. The way we take communion is we start on the bread, and we tear a piece of bread away. Remember that his body, his real body that felt pain, that felt exhaustion, that had needs, his real body was broken. We take the bread and we dip it into the wine or the grape juice. On this side of the room, the wine is in the stoneware, the grape juice in the glassware. On this side of the room, the wine is in the small cup. The grape juice is in the big cup. We will get matching cups, I swear. One day, we will get them. But we do it to remember that his blood was spilled. Jesus died. But we're still doing it as we look forward because Jesus rose again and we're looking forward to our own resurrection where the worldly pattern of love has no more hold on us. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, we, uh, we just ask for help. Um, our friendships, our relationships, they need an unworldly love to enter in and to grow out. And Lord, give us strength to participate with that, to give the benefit of the doubt to others, to confess deeply to one another. Lord, give us that strength because you tell us the way the world is going to know us. You don't say is by our awesome theology. You don't say by, by the incredible books that we write. Theology and books, extremely important. You say the world is going to identify us by the way we love one another. Providing life-giving needs, knowing the problem, being close enough to our brother to know the problem, to enter in not to reciprocate whatever they're doing to us, to give love in place of hate, to go the extra mile, to provide for needs. Lord, make us a people like that. Father, we ask for help. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.